The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. spend the next, yeah, I think it might be 10 weeks, going through the, the final part of the Gospel of John. We've uh, covered this Gospel over three chunks. You might remember a while ago we did the, the signs of the sun, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now, and then last year we did the, the farewell discourse where where Jesus was with his disciples, teaching them in, in John chapters 13 to 17. So, over this next sermon of it, we're going to uh, look at the final few chapters of the Gospel of John. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen. And I am going to embarrass my son Reuben. As I embarrass myself and say, hey, Ruben, can you go get the paper, please? Because I've done everything, I've forgotten that. Uh, go see Mr. Bishop, he'll get it out of the thing. So it doesn't affect what you can see now, so this will go seamlessly in the background. So no one will even know. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. John chapter 18, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Sorry, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, 
Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We humbly ask this morning that your Holy Spirit will speak to us through this word and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start by asking you a question, if I may. What do you think of when you hear the word garden mentioned in the Bible? What comes to mind when the word garden is mentioned? I suspect and possibly secretly hope your mind goes to the Garden of Eden. The first garden, the garden mentioned back in Genesis 2, verses 18 to 16, the garden where Adam and Eve lived and, and walked with the Lord. The first garden in the Bible is significant. So are other gardens in the Bible. See, in John chapter 18, verse 1, we notice that Jesus enters a garden. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 name the garden as Gethsemane. However, John is very deliberate in not naming the garden. He leaves it anonymous. Jesus just enters a garden. In fact, by leaving the garden unnamed, John helps us to consider the deeper significance of the word garden in relation to the Bible. You might remember that John's Gospel begins with the words, in the beginning. And by doing so, John signals to his readers that we need to be looking and interpreting John's Gospel through a kind of Genesis lens, a Genesis filter. We should have the events of creation and now the garden in the back of our minds as we look at what John presents to us about the life of Jesus. Now this occurrence in chapter 18, verse 1 of John is not the only time a garden is mentioned in his final chapters. John tells us that there was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified. That garden also contained the tomb in which Jesus was buried. The tomb from which Jesus was resurrected. So the mention of a garden, in fact, frames everything from Jesus' betrayal to his death and his resurrection. So when we put all this together, we might say that the contrast of the first and second gardens should switch us on to look for the contrast between the first and second Adams. It was in the first garden that humanity came and opposed God. It was also in a garden that humanity comes in opposition to Jesus. It was in the first garden that humanity was given life and freedom but use that life and freedom to choose death. It is also in a garden that life and freedom will be used to make a choice. 
But here, Jesus will freely choose to die so that we might have life. As John takes us into the garden here in chapter 18, he invites us to read what happens to Jesus in light of Genesis. And so in the coming weeks, as we look at what Jesus allows himself to be subjected to, as we notice what Jesus endured, we are encouraged to have Eden in the back of our minds and see that what Jesus did, he did for you. As the scene is set for us in verses 1 to 3, the first thing we'll notice is the appearance of power. These verses tell us that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The verses start with the words when Jesus had spoken these words. That's the phrase that John uses to link what is to come with what has happened before. Where Jesus has spent time, likely in the upper room, teaching his disciples. Saying what would happen, what was to come. But also praying for them and for us. Jesus then comes out of the city and enters the garden. Now, this is not a decorative garden which you might have, have at home. It's not something where you might sit and appreciate the colour and the smell, the aromas. No, this is not a decorative garden. It's a functional garden. It's an olive grove. Gethsemane is a word that means olive press. This olive grove is just east of Jerusalem, just across what was known as the Kidron Valley. It, it is a garden that is close enough within the, the city limits that for a Jew at Passover time, they'd be able to go there and not be disqualified from eating the Passover because they hadn't gone too far from the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' routine throughout the past week has been to go and spend time in the garden. He was in the temple by day, and he had retired to the garden by night. It's a routine that Judas had intimate knowledge of. Judas was last seen back in chapter 13, verses 21 to 30. Notice some of the wording that John uses there, particularly in verses 27 and 30. Jesus had been asked who it was that was going to betray him. He says, to one who, whom I give this morsel of, of bread to. Then verse 27. After he had taken the morsel, that is Judas, Satan entered into him. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, 
tea that is Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Judas goes out into the darkness. Satan entered into Judas in verse 27. Judas entered into the darkness in verse 30. Judas seems to be the instrument that Satan is using for the task of leading those who were to arrest Jesus, which we're told is a a group of soldiers, of Roman soldiers, as well as, you might say, the temple police, officers and such from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Judas has the task of leading them through the darkness so they might come and arrest Jesus. Even the fact that it's those coming to arrest Jesus are a combination of Jewish and Roman authorities is likely to symbolize that the whole world, Jews and Greeks, are involved in this betrayal and arrest. The world comes to Jesus led by Satan to arrest Jesus in the ultimate act of betrayal. And they're strategic about how they go about it. They choose a time and place where it would be easier to arrest a public figure, a popular public figure like Jesus would have been. And to do so, avoiding the possibility of a mob forming to defend Jesus. They come with the appearance of power. Look at verse 3. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's possible that Pilate might have been already given a heads up that this sort of thing was going to take place. The Roman soldiers would have been in Jerusalem at that time, so that any unrest that might have sort of come about as part of this special festival season might have been quickly dealt with. There would have been plenty of soldiers in the city stationed there, yet possibly not all of them would have come to Jesus this night. Notice the irony here. They come with their little torches of light to the one who is the light of the world. They come with the appearance of power to the one who is the creator of all things. We live in a world obsessed with power, don't we? Our history, our evening news, our own lives are no doubt littered with examples of people's pursuit of power and their misuse of power. We need to acknowledge that our power is limited. It cannot compare with the power of the Almighty. We all have power, don't we? 
and we use our power to perform everyday tasks, making a cup of coffee, going to work and doing a job, seeking to, to disciple our children, to influence people. We all use our power. Maybe we join with others to cause our, our power to, to concentrate, to condense, and, and to grow our power together, don't we? Or that's why organizations form, right? Different, different businesses will, will get together and, and form a group to have more buying power, to have more influence over their supply chain. As Judas and his posse approach Jesus, they appear powerful. But despite appearances, John will make it clear that Jesus is the one in control. He has the ultimate power here. It's important that we notice what Jesus does with his power, what he uses his power for. Jesus uses his power to protect and provide for his followers. Look at how he protects them. We get a glimpse of his divine power in verses 5 and 6. It comes when Jesus says, I am he. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it may seem a little strange to us that someone saying, yeah, that's me, would cause people to, to draw back and fall to the ground. Obviously, there's more going on here than just what appears on the surface. There's more to Jesus' statement. And John makes it obvious to us using the Greek words ego and me, which is translated I am he in verses 5, 6, and 8. These words link to the famous I am statements of Jesus that John shows, points to Jesus' divinity. There's also a statement in John chapter 8, verse 58, that the Jews were very clear of what Jesus was claiming about himself. Because it's the statement that saw them pick up stones and seek to stone him on the spot. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. That is God's divine name. The name with which he revealed himself to the Israelites back in Exodus. Jesus has the power in this situation, friends. But not through weight of numbers or weight of weapons. Jesus has the power because he is the I am. He is the Almighty. He is God. His power is clear 
but so is his purpose. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus uses his power to protect his disciples. This is a one-for-all moment, not an all-for-one moment. Jesus steps forward from his disciples and enters into the custody of the soldiers, putting himself between his disciples and that which would bring them harm. He says, if you want me, then let these blokes go. He uses his power to protect. And then we also notice a statement of Jesus in verse 9. The fulfillment that John refers to that Jesus refers to is his is found in his prayer in chapter 12, chapter 17 verse 12 where Jesus says how he has guarded or, or kept safe his disciples if you're keen to look that up you might want to also check out chapter 10 verse 28 and chapter 6 verses 38 and 39 that'd be well worth your study Jesus is using his power to protect his followers, but not just that. He will also use his power to provide for them. Verses 11 and 14 point us to this. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John here is pointing us towards a greater provision that Jesus will provide for his followers. But Peter attempts to, to end the standoff that is happening by taking things into his own hands tries to end it by fighting his way out. I'm not sure if Peter considered himself pretty handy with a sword or not. But this act of violence that he chooses is more likely to get himself killed than it is to end in success. One man with a little dagger is not likely to defeat a detachment of Roman soldiers plus temple police. But thankfully, in the poor light of that night, it only manages to cut off to sever the ear of the servant of the high priest, which Jesus miraculously and powerfully heals. There is no doubt that despite being outnumbered, outarmed, and seemingly outmaneuvered, it is actually Jesus who is in control. And he will not let harm come to his disciples, nor will he allow 
the actions of humans to derail him from his mission. So he turns to Peter and says, put your sword into its sheath. You see, this is not a fight. This is a forfeit. This is not going to be a struggle. This is submission. Submission to the soldiers, yes. But Jesus does this because his submission is more than just submission to the soldiers. Look at verse 11, the second part. Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup here is a metaphor for the wrath of God. For Jesus to drink the cup means for him to experience God's wrath. The cup is given to Jesus by the Father. So Jesus' forfeit to the soldiers is due to his submission to the Father's will. Submission that he makes willingly. Jesus said back in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The laying down of Jesus' life starts in chapter 18 with Jesus allowing himself to be arrested. For the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Just think about that for a minute. I suspect that the disciples wanted to understand the reason why Jesus would allow this to happen. Maybe you do too. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's will and allowed himself to be arrested. the hands that created the world, that had just healed a severed ear, weren't quenched in fists towards those who opposed them. Far from it. They were willingly offered and bound, held together in order to protect and provide for those who will follow Jesus.
We know who has the power. Jesus is well aware of all that was to happen to him. Yet he chose to use his power to protect and provide for you. He did it for you. How will you respond to him today? I suppose generally there's, there's three ways that you respond. You might choose to respond with indifference. I'll just let this slide over here. Oh, that happened back then. What really does it mean to me today? It's got nothing to do with me. Well, maybe you, you choose to respond in opposition. Maybe you'll choose to go no, he didn't do it for me. I don't need him. If you're considering the first two options, let me encourage you. Consider the third. Third option to respond is is the option of acceptance. Open your hands and open your heart to Him. To accept what He has done for you and to say thank you. As we go in these coming weeks through chapters 18 to 21 of John, I pray that we'll all be people who will allow our hearts to be open open to what the Lord wants to say to us through his word, open to see Jesus for who he truly is, for he did this for us, that we pray. Lord Jesus, we are not equally comprehensive what we read through in these chapters. We're going to miss so much. We're not truly going to know the gravity of what it is for the Creator Almighty to endure what you endure. You will open our hearts and open our eyes to see you as you truly are, to give you the glory you deserve, but allow it to hit us. But with all that's going on, with all that Jesus is doing here, he also did it for us so that we might know you and have a relationship with you. 
Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit will be at work through this series that we're looking at. Be at work in us, and Lord, I pray, be at work through us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.